Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with the Hearing Consultancy, thehearingconsultancy.ie. Hello and welcome to Health and Fitness with me, David Hollywood. Coming up on this week's show, we ask the question, just how dangerous is vaping to young people? There's the damage vaping can do, and then there's the danger of introducing a new generation to nicotine products. You'll hear from a consultant in paediatric respiratory medicine on the issue. We're going to talk about the sport of handball as well, a game that develops agility, both physical and mental. It works both sides of your body. And you'll hear from a woman from Westmeath representing Ireland on the international stage who says it's a sport that will welcome you with open arms. Right now, though, we're talking about breastfeeding. It is National Breastfeeding Week and on Health and Fitness this evening, we're talking to the co-founder of Quidju, Offaly's Yasmin el Kershi, and first Patricia Martinson, who works as Offaly's public lactation consultant. She starts our conversation by talking about the Midlands breastfeeding support options for new mothers. There's lots of support available in the community. There are great breastfeeding support groups. There is great support available from the HSE and the public health nurses. If anyone has a problem, please don't be shy about coming forth. We don't believe breastfeeding should be painful. Uh, There are many uh, resources that we can use to help you. And please don't suffer in silence. Okay, so we've got some key messages there. And we're going to have a chat about some of the key issues as well this evening. What about how women are accommodated with breastfeeding by our society and by extension um, in places like the workplace because uh, this is particular territory uh, that has always been a bit divisive and, and, and probably causes a lot of anxiety for uh, new mothers. Uh, Yasmin, I know you've got a strong background in terms of uh, dealing with the workplace as a recruitment agent as well. Uh, you might talk us through in this country where, where we kind of stand on these issues with breastfeeding in the workplace, for instance. Yeah, so I mean, actually this year has been an amazing year if you're a breastfeeding mother in the workplace. So um, in June, a new law was passed or came in actually and it allows breastfeeding breaks up until the baby is two years of age. So you get one hour and it'll be paid by your workplace and you can split it into um, two two 30 minutes or three 20 minutes. Um, And if possible, if your employer can afford it, a private room for you to pump if you're going to pump and a fridge to um, pump your milk. If they don't have that space, then you could, you know, arrange with them to take a break or whatever, if whatever you can do. In terms They're of obligated that. to accommodate your requirement when it comes to breastfeeding in the workplace. Yeah, pretty Brilliant. much. Yeah. And it's it's amazing. And then the other thing just is like because like myself and Patricia were talking about it and in Kuiju and in her line of work as well. We have a lot of mothers who are really concerned about going back to work when they're breastfeeding. They're thinking, my baby, common thing with um, breastfed babies is they won't take a bottle. You know, they're worried, like, are they going to have to wean the baby before they go back to work and all Mm. that. And as a working mom of a baby who's under two years of age, thank God, (laughs) so I get those breaks. Um, I can say that it's just amazing. So I was worried about going back to work and actually... It was the finest. It was so easy. I can't tell you. So I feed in the morning. I'm lucky enough that I can feed at lunchtime. I know lots of mums that don't. And then when I come home from work, I I feed again. And so my baby has not taken a bottle. And the other thing as well to know is it's a kind of a funny one is we're all really worried about our babies taking bottles. But actually, even formula fed babies, when they reach one, are told to get rid of the bottle because it causes it. 
the milk pools in the back of their mouth so they get tooth decay. Oh. So, yeah, so even we're like, you know, the breastfed moms are all obsessed with trying to get their baby to take a bottle, but then you're literally training them for something that in a few months they're going to get rid of. So... Patricia would say. We we recommend that they go on to um, a, a sippy cup or lots of babies mm-hmm. can actually drink off a spoon. And um, we actually have some of the mums find that they bring, if they're working, that their partner or child minder will bring the baby into them for the ones that won't take a sippy cup so they can feed them on the breaks. And um, the older the baby is, they're normally on other food as well they can get fluids in other ways like mm. soup or um, yogurt or there's many other options juice or water so then milk right yeah. because after a year old like you don't actually need to have formula you can go on straight to just cow's milk well and this is interesting actually Patricia so from the perspective of breastfeeding and uh, those who are advocating for it and, and supporting uh, women who are looking to breastfeed. Is the spectre of the bottle, is that something that, as you outlined there, after a certain amount of time, it, it's better for children to move on from it anyway? Is it, Are we talking about looking to kind of eliminate the use of it entirely? What I would say is that um, some people choose to use a bottle and that's choice and it's actually easier and an awful lot less work when there's no bottles there's no getting up in the middle of the night there's no sterilising there's there's less preparation so for some of the mums who want to supplement there's a supplemental feeding system in for the mums that don't have a a good supply if they're starting out and they can actually feed at the breast. They've actually found that babies who actually feed at the breast use a whole total different um, set of muscles and they regularise their breathing and their heart rate and they use uh, less energy. Mm. And for the little teeny weenies in the beginning, that's actually really important. It's remarkable, isn't it, how impactful certain things are the younger we are the the quicker we're developing the more sensitive we are to changes in environment and habit and, and this type of thing Yasmin uh, referred to something that I think is quite interesting that you might be able to speak to as well Patricia in your work uh, in, in terms of when you're consulting with people who are going through their breastfeeding journey and that is that slowly but surely the areas that caused women anxiety around breastfeeding are being addressed in this country to some degree. It must change gradually, but not imminently, but on a, in a substantive way. It must change the motherhood experience uh, to peel away these moments of anxiety. And if we get far enough, it's, 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 it's a very different experience if you compare 30, 40 years ago to today and maybe in 20, 30 years time. Yasmin, you want to come in on this? Yeah, I do, because my mum breastfed me, I won't say how many years ago, but it was a good long time ago. And she tried. And so she had, she was one of the only people that she knew that was breastfeeding, right? And she had no support. So she said she stopped breastfeeding me because she thought I was hungry all the time. Okay. But actually, what was actually happening was I was cluster feeding, right? Because that's what babies do at night time because they're getting ready for, you know, night, right? So they're, <laughs> they're cluster feeding in the evenings. But she thought she hadn't enough milk, so she stopped. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that you're talking about, right? So that as we have, you know, positive things on social media and lactation consultants all around the world, and, you know, I as a mom didn't know anything about breastfeeding when I started. I mean, 
It's a definite whole new skill and a lot to learn. And we have like support groups like Patricia and like Guiju and Lalette and all these kind of things that we can find these things out and not have, you know, and then the stress reduces. Right. Because for my mother, she thought that I was starving. Right. And that, that like <laughs> you can't emphasize enough <laughs> just how concerning that is. Oh, yeah. um, we're in a better place in this country at the moment we're talking about breastfeeding it is National Breastfeeding Week you're listening to Health and Fitness and when we return Patricia Martinson and Yasmin el uh we're going to continue our discussion we're going to look at some of uh, the positive statistics that are coming out of the Midlands in relation to breastfeeding Health and Fitness with David Hollywood with the Hearing Consultancy book a free hearing test at our clinics in Clara, Edenderry, Kinnegad, Mullingar, Tullamore and get impartial advice on hearing aids, ear protection, tinnitus help and more thehearingconsultancy.ie National Breastfeeding Week in Ireland and across the Midlands takes place from the 1st of October up until the 7th this week and in studio uh, with me this evening I've got uh, Offaly Public Lactation Consultant Patricia Martinson and Yasmin el Kershi who's the co-founder of Quiju. Guys, we were talking about a lot of the environmental realities in this country uh, about breastfeeding and how that's gradually changing the main purpose of this conversation is to maybe raise awareness and point out some of the positives about breastfeeding. And Patricia, uh, we were speaking earlier about how some of those benefits manifest. You might talk us through, for instance, uh, the kind of hormonal things that go on with baby and mother uh, when breastfeeding is happening. Well, when breastfeeding is happening, um, there is... Uh, an oxytocin release which is basically called the love hormone Mm. but that actually helps with mum's anxiety and the baby gets that as well so there's also like a natural morphine in breast milk which actually helps with pain control in the baby and some of the other hormones that happen are at night time when it starts getting dark melatonin is released and that helps the baby sleep and follow the circadian rhythms it's Mm. amazing and then um The breast milk also has three hormones in it, which helps regulate satiety. And it means that those babies uh, know when they're full and they won't overeat. And this has huge implications because those babies are less likely to go on to develop obesity, heart disease, diabetes. And then for the mums, um, in addition to losing weight, um, reducing the risk of uh, cancer development, They also um, have more stable uh, blood sugars and uh, you actually put off developing diabetes down the line when you breastfeed as well. And also the the most recent research shows that for every month you breastfeed, you actually put off developing Alzheimer's by a full year. So the more I learn about breast milk, the more absolutely amazing it is. Mm. And we don't know enough about it. But we do know that there's oligosaccharides in it that feeds the baby's gut and keeps all the bad pathogens out of there. And they do say now that the gut is linked to the brain. So the more we feed the baby the good stuff, the more they're all... It's also, I suppose, evidenced by the fact research has shown that they're about 8 to 10 points uh, smarter on the IQ scale. So I think that's absolutely amazing. As we sit here and and talk about all of these benefits, we we also have to acknowledge the reality that at some juncture and at some point, the breastfeeding journey does stop. So during this Awareness Week, it's probably important that we I ask you the question and you can talk us through 
how and when mothers come to that conclusion and what you would counsel when that question's asked? Okay, well, can I say to you, I always say finish on a good day if you can. Breastfeeding has been very healing for a lot of those ladies and the ladies that don't succeed um, once they, they make an informed choice, I 100% support them and I want to help them in any way I can. It's important that um, they have had the healing um, from, I suppose, experiencing it. And when they're ready, it's their decision. Every family is unique and uh, my job is just to help them on whatever journey they choose to have. Some people think that when they're going back to work, it's either all or nothing. Um, and the same with uh, some of the mums who come out from hospital. Some of them had wanted to breastfeed in the hospital but didn't succeed. But we managed to relactate them when they came out to the community. Some people had wanted to combine and that's fine. We will help them to achieve that. Um, the ones that want to stop, well, we tell them how to achieve that without um, uh, getting mastitis. And what we try and do is reduce one of the nighttime feeds because your prolactin level is highest usually between midnight and four o'clock and that's the signal that says to the brain hey make more milk for tomorrow <laughs> so um, when we try and dial that down a little bit then they don't have as much uh, engorgement then the following day sure. and it's easier for them all but there's two sets of hormones that come into play from about 16 weeks a lot of the women think that their milk is gone but it's not it's a different set of hormones so you need the baby needs to be sucking for about two or three minutes before the milk flood starts coming but they don't feel as if they've actually anything in their chest but that's all normal okay so that's good to be aware of as well when going through something like that yasmin the situation in offaly uh you've you're a very good person to talk to about this because you you've you're a co-founder of Quidu and you've kind of had your finger on the pulse here for some time. And I understand um, when compared to the national picture, you guys must be doing something right because the numbers are really encouraging in terms of uh, the people who are engaging in breastfeeding and what's happening once they start their journey. Yeah, it's amazing, actually, to be honest, David. It's actually it's so funny when Patricia told me the numbers, I actually didn't believe her. Sorry, Patricia, but that's true because it was just so unbelievably good. So basically, um, the measurements are like if so for on the first public um, health nurse visit, you've got 60, 62% of mothers nationally are combination feeding. OK, um, and that's risen year on year, actually. So that's really great. OK, um, so. And that goes down to about 39%, or 39.5% or 31.5, excuse me, at three months. Um, but in Offaly, um, we have amazing facts. So if you're breastfeeding on your first public health nurse visit, by, on your, uh, by your three babies th- and when your baby is three months old, um, that figure is 100% of those mothers are still breastfeeding to some extent My this God. year. That's, that's remarkable. Um, remarkable. What what do we think are the reasons behind that success rate? Oh, I think there's just a multitude of reasons. I think Patricia's doing fantastic work in the community and there's lots of people there doing great work in the community. I think, Patricia, you have done a lot of things and maybe Patricia can come in and talk about this in terms of buddy systems and um, just support. That's it. I know as a, a mum, first time mum, breastfeeding, I just really needed support. And that's how I met Patricia, actually, because I ended up with mastitis and Patricia let me her pump. <laughs> and, and you can testify to just how important 
getting that support is and I talking was, to someone. I was going to quit, David, to be honest with you. Okay. I was done. And I, talking I to someone done. who understands what you're going through, who's seen it before, and to know that it's not just you, that must fundamentally be so important. It's fundamentally important. But honestly, David, what I really needed was just practical help. That was it. Okay. I actually just needed someone to tell me what to do. So it was great to have that support and everything, but I didn't know what to do. OK, um, let's talk about the supports that are available, Patricia. You might talk us through what kind of things are being done for breastfeeding mothers in, in, in the Midlands, specifically in Offaly, to, to these great statistics we mentioned. And after that, I'm going to ask you to tell us what it means to you to do what you do. Um the we're actually blessed here in Offaly that uh, the HSC resourced this post uh, for the last year and a half. And um, if there's somebody in trouble, the public health nurse would do a referral to me. Or if somebody has used my service, their neighbour might give it to them. Or you refers into me, or the hospital, or Dublin. And basically, the first thing I do is I make contact with the lady and they don't have to come to see me because a lot of them are just home and they're just not able to even contemplate going on a journey. Of course. So yeah. we do a video uh, consult and I give them as long as they need. They pick whatever it is that they want to fix and we usually start with something small that will achieve a success rate. So if they have a painful latch or they can't latch, I teach them how to latch the baby. And they can't believe it. The smiles and the happiness, they just can't believe it. And um, that just gives them such a sense of, I can do this. And then we've, we're very lucky that um, they give anyone under the Mother and Child Act, irrespective of their income, access to a hospital grade pump um, if there's a clinical need. And for a lot of people who didn't manage to get the baby latched successfully in the hospital, this means then that they can uh, protect the milk supply and gives them the opportunity then to see that they can produce milk and then we just get them latched and then they get the babies up over the wee hump because uh, some of them are just a bit tired or whatever after the birth they've mm. had and they just need a little bit of TLC to get them going. This is really good as well for the premature babies and with, uh, I suppose, financial difficulties now, there's a lot of pressure on, on parents and the money has gone down that the pump rental mightn't seem like a big thing but it actually is. Yeah. And then when we get them going it might be just short term and then we are blessed to have um, uh, Kidju and the other groups and all the community development that has taken place here both for the bottle feeders and the breast feeders to link them into it to create community and empower the women to be their own tribe, really. That's perfect. There's practical uh, and personal support at play. And when you see someone like Yasmin not only flourishing and benefiting in terms of her breastfeeding experience, but then putting her shoulder to the wheel and, and driving this type of thing, how do you reflect on your role in all of that? How do you feel when you see mothers take that first step and, as you say, the smiles break out because the latching has just happened these are daily moments for you or regular moments for you, but for, for the individual women you're speaking to, uh, they're, they're almost life-changing moments. Well, for a lot of the ladies, they are life-changing moments because some of them mightn't have had the birth that they envisioned. Breastfeeding is healing. The women are great. They pass it on. They all help each other. You asked me uh, to uh, 
describe what doing this job uh, means to me. I probably am one of the happiest public health nurses that you could possibly meet. Um, I get great joy out of uh, helping somebody along uh, the journey. And I suppose in the past year, there have been probably so far, year and a half, 400 women that we have got over the hump. They text me if they're in trouble, even if they're I've met their first need and they can come back to me. It's literally mm. an open uh, communication system. And I'm blessed as well with the support I have from my colleagues who we can see the difference. We can see that the level of postnatal depression is going down. We can see that there was really good communication between the mummies and the, their babies. And we we can like teach them to look for positive communication cues. And a happy baby is a happy mummy, is a happy family, is a happy daddy who goes into work, is a happy community. And you asked me about what would I see as my legacy, hopefully to create my little donation to a good, healthy, functioning community. Well, the numbers in Offaly immediately are suggesting that that's what's uh, happening. Yasmin, as we finish up here, if people at home are listening this evening and they are expecting or they are already thinking proactively about their breastfeeding journey, what are the things they can do if they want more information and uh, if they're looking to reach out for maybe for help as well? Yeah. So um, if you're expecting and you're thinking about breastfeeding, you can come along to a Quiju um, meeting. So just look up Quiju Offaly on your social media. Um, there's a group in Banagher as well. And um, you can contact your public health nurse or us and we can send you on Patricia's details if you are feeding at the minute. Or you, I had a mother the other day who's planning to feed in a few months who I passed on the details to. So, you know, it's just get there and have your support ready is really what I would say. Well, as you've just said there, you guys are there and ready to help if indeed um, there is anyone out there who needs needs that assistance. We are very grateful for both of you coming in. Patricia Martinson of Breastfeeding Support in Offaly and Yasmin Elkirshi, who's the uh, co-founder of Quiju Offaly. Uh, guys, thanks very much for talking to us about uh, Breastfeeding Week in health, on Health and Fitness this evening. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. After the break, we investigate the consequences of vaping on young people. Talk to you soon. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with The Hearing Consultancy with free hearing test clinics in Clara, Tullamore, Kinnegad, Mullingar Dental Clinic and now at Keens Care Plus Pharmacy Edenderry, thehearingconsultancy.ie Over the last number of years we've seen the rise and the rise of the use of vapes, disposable or otherwise. Uh, I suppose the question for many was uh, whilst they might be replacing uh, the habit of smoking tobacco for uh, some people uh, were they to ultimately end up being a gateway to smoking for younger people another concern as well was uh, that there had not been a lot of uh, research or positions laid out in relation to vaping um, so we didn't know exactly what was coming down the tracks in that regard uh, I'm very glad to say that uh, Professor Des Cox who's a consultant in paediatric respiratory medicine uh, with CHI Ireland uh, Crumlin I should say and um, is here to talk to us about a paper that was published uh, by the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland um, Professor Des thanks for taking our call on health and fitness this evening uh, speaking to the introduction I made there uh, we didn't know a huge amount about the consequences of vaping uh, whilst it was becoming so ubiquitous and, and usage was increasing very quickly. Do we know significantly more now? Yeah, so 
I suppose the first thing to say is that you're correct in that there has been a significant rise in the use of uh, vaping by uh, young people in the last uh, five years. Currently, 11% of under 25-year-olds in Ireland use vapes on a daily basis or occasionally. Um, and uh, the product of choice of uh, young people who vape is now disposable vapes. So uh, disposable vapes are single-use um, products that are made up of plastic and lithium battery and contain e-liquid, which contains nicotine and other um, and other um, um, ingredients. And uh, research from the UK suggests that um, there has been an exponential rise in the number of teenagers and uh, you know people under the age of 25 switching over to disposable vapes. Um, so I suppose the, the argument for banning these is that um, we're not talking about banning all forms of e-cigarettes, we're just talking about banning this form of e-cigarette. And the rationale is, is that one, to protect young people, and uh, two, there's an environmental hazard to these because they're quite difficult to recycle. So in respect to why we want to protect young people from these, um, we know that uh, you know that, that there is evidence that um, e-cigarettes can cause respiratory and heart issues uh, for young people. So we would see young people come in with uh, you know, acute symptoms of uh, respiratory problems like cough, wheeze, short spread. We see uh, kids have asthma attacks triggered uh, because of their using vapes. Um, so and their asthma symptoms are worse. And then in the long run, we see, we, what we're, we're likely to see is that uh, people who, young people <clears throat> whose lungs are still developing, uh, who use these products uh, in their teenage years, are likely to develop chronic bronchitis, COPD type symptoms in later life. So that's the, the we don't know this for sure, but that's mm. what the hypothesis is, is that uh, it's not as uh, it's not as harmful as smoking. Um, we don't, we're not, we're not saying that at all. We, we're not saying that, um, that these, these products are less harmful than tobacco smoking, but there's been a surge in teenage use of these products and they're, 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 you know, teenagers and non-smokers should not be using these products because they are harmful. Again, not as harmful as cigarettes, but they are harmful. Yeah, and that's a remarkable and kind of worrying statistic that you say 11%, 1 in 10 young people um, using these products they are nicotine products, so there must be a concern as well that whilst people aren't picking up cigarettes immediately at a young age, this is a nicotine product. Nicotine is very addictive. We're likely to see potentially an, a new generation of smokers as a consequence of this because of the sheer numbers of people, uh, young people vaping at the moment. Yes, um, so there is evidence um, that uh, teenagers who vape uh, are three to five times more likely to move on to tobacco smoking. So that's uh, evidence that was published by the Health Research Board back in 2020. Um, so, so that is a major concern for us, is that if you uh, have large uh, swathes of, of the youth populations vaping, is that a certain percentage will move on to tobacco products. There was a data published in Northern Ireland uh, which showed that 38% of uh, teenagers who vaped uh, had never had never smoked before. So these are teenagers who are just taking up the product 
uh, never smoked uh, or any uh, or tobacco products and just are starting with vapes. So it's like a, a gateway or an introductory product. And even more so, what's, what's worse with the disposal vapes is that they're, they're not only they're single use, but they're cheap. You can buy them over the counter uh, for five or six euros. You can buy them in any petrol station or any shop. Most, not any shop, but most, you know, there's, there's a large number of retail outlets that you can purchase these in, so there's ease of access, and um, and we still don't have a legislation in place, although it's on the way, uh, that bans the sale of these products to under 18s. So the disposable vapes are under the spotlight at the moment, and uh, there looks it looks like there will be a significant move to ban them in 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 uh, coming up soon. Uh, from your perspective. What else would you like to see done around, be it disposable vapes or indeed uh, vapes, generally speaking, in terms of government policy and uh, our our kind of direction forward with this issue? Yeah, yeah. So, so the 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 the, um, the the policy or the priority of the policy should be to one to protect young people. So we need to protect uh, young people from from these products. So try and uh, dissuade them from. Um, moving to take these up um, yes um, is there a way that we can help ex-smokers who wish to use vapes um, as, an, as a quitting tool uh, is there a way that we can uh, facilitate that as well I, I think there is and certainly we, we as paediatricians uh, are very strong with the obviously protect young people so first of all banning disposable vapes because it's a product of choice of young people um, so that's the first thing um, a, a, a ban on flavours apart from tobacco uh, flavors it would be also make the product less attractive uh, to young people and then there needs to be very strict advertising and marketing of these products so the <clears throat> vaping companies who uh, some some of them are have uh, significant ownership by the tobacco industry are marketing these products to teenagers on social media um, that they have taken over the narrative um, and they are setting the agenda and uh, that our concern is that when young people go online they're seeing influencers they're seeing um, advertisements for vaping products uh, <clears throat> and if they're if the vaping pro- companies were just looking to target smokers they wouldn't be going on TikTok and social media outlets like that so really uh, we need to need to put a halt to that so so apart from a balance age, we would like restrictions on flavors and restrict significant restrictions on advertising and marketing and, and even point of sale and, and plain packaging would be helpful as well anything that will allow EC, uh, ex-smokers to access these products but also uh, stop the young people taking them up well, I suppose maybe one of the silver linings is that we've learned a number of ways of going about dealing with this issue through the struggle against uh, tobacco products in the first place. Uh, Professor Des Cox, thanks for talking to us on Health and Fitness this evening. Thanks. Next on Health and Fitness, you'll learn about a sport with a long and rich history in Ireland. It's about family, it's about friends and it's about performance. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods in association with The Hearing Consultancy. Passionate about hearing and hearing health, we use the latest technologies to identify and analyse hearing issues and provide their solutions. Book a free test on thehearingconsultancy.ie. Now, a sport that uh, Ireland actually competes in with uh, typically great success and generally known to be extremely proficient at is the sport of handball. I'm very glad to say that uh, one of Ireland's representatives 
at uh, the European One Wall uh, Tour event in Spain uh, joins us on Health and Fitness this evening to talk about uh, her exploits uh, over in Spain and maybe a bit more generally about the sport. Uh, Aoife McCarthy is on the show. Aoife, you managed to pick up uh, silver in the Ladies Open singles and gold in the doubles uh, over in Valencia. Uh, How did you enjoy your time over in Spain? Oh, I loved it. It was so good being back on the tour. It's the, it was the first stop of the European tour for 2023-2024. And the weather definitely has. <laughs> it was uh, pretty cold here in Ireland. So it was nice to, um, to go over and compete and uh, do well, I suppose, for the first stop. And obviously there's areas to improve on, but I'm definitely happy with the success of the stop. What, how many more or um, what kind of frequency do these events uh, roll on now? Is there uh, reasonable gaps in between each uh, stop on the tour? Um, so for the first two, there's four weeks. So I'll head to Belgium now on the 2nd of November uh, for stop number two. And then there is a stop then in France the first week of December. But it, it gives us then eight weeks then break then until the next one just for Christmas and all that. So yeah, so then, and then it's again back to the UK then for the end of February. So it's it's a nice gap all the same. Like it gives definitely gives time to work on things, mm. um, but not too far away. Something to look forward to as well. Yeah, and look, not bad spots to be going to uh, going to around Europe as well. Yeah. Um, how does competition compare domestically to internationally? Yeah, so um, so yeah, so a lot of the Irish players. Um, so I was the only Irish player in the ladies open this uh, in Spain, and mm. um, so I would have played the All Ireland here and lost in the semi final. Um, so it it's it's different, I suppose, just the scoring format and uh, the amount of games you play per day and stuff like that. Um, but I definitely prioritise um, one wall over 40 by 20. So it suits me to travel where some people, some other players prioritise other codes over this one. They both have their strengths. You know, it just depends, I suppose, on the um, the time, I suppose, uh, the, and the format you're playing. Do you know what I mean? So it's in which suits you best. Yeah, 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 of course. I'm, I'm, I'm actually keeping half an eye on some footage from the men's doubles uh, at the Spanish Open. And uh, what strikes me is uh, there's a huge amount of agility and strength and timing and spatial awareness um, that's required to uh, manage the doubles. You picked up gold in the ladies' open doubles. Um, How well do you need to know your playing partner when it comes to playing one wall? Oh, God, yeah. It's very, you need to know uh, definitely their strengths. So uh, my partner was uh, Stacey, um, who was representing Israel. And uh, it was our first tournament together. Um, I definitely knew her strengths because she just whipped me in the singles prior <laughs> to that. So I knew what she was well capable of doing. But, um, yeah, no, she's... Uh, you definitely need to know their strengths and just give them their space and be able to, to like, I suppose, trust that they can do what they need to do and um so it's definitely it was i suppose it was for the two of us to get um used to each other we had a practice game or two only mm. um but we definitely gelled well with the men you can definitely see that both of the teams in the men's final are play are pairings that played a lot longer together you can definitely see how well they they gelled and how it should be played. So um, we're we're going to play again in Belgium, and we're going to hope that we can improve on what we 
we did in Spain, like just playing better together and hopefully get the same results. Sounds like you could be a formidable pairing if there's still plenty to build on then. Oh, absolutely. Oh, there's definitely plenty to build on. Um, we played well together. We definitely gelled well together, but we there's things that I can improve on and just, I suppose, in playing doubles and that. So, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. More generally, speaking more generally, I should say, your passion for the sport, it comes across pretty quickly in conversation here this evening. Um, how long has it been a big part of your life? Why was it that uh, do you think you found yourself uh, onto the, the court for handball? Um, yeah, so I've been playing handball, I think, since I was about eight years of age. So it's quite a long time now. And yeah. um, pushing 20 years, well, over 20 years, I should say. I found myself in handball court uh, through family. Um, my dad would have brought us down to the handball court mm. here in Mullingar. Um, I think we were basically like we grew up in a, in a handball alley. Um, my brother, obviously, Rob Jr., he's very successful in his, as well. So, um, yeah, we just, yeah, I suppose, and then like the adoption to travel, I think I traveled to the States for the first time when I was nine and just, wow. like, yeah, like my parents gave me that opportunity and like I've been so many times since. It's just a social aspect as well and you meet people from all around the world and you have to travel and play and just, I suppose, I just enjoy the atmosphere. I, I do enjoy the, the individual elements as well because I feel, it felt like when I was playing on a team sport, like as part of like, if I had a bad game or whatever, I was letting everyone down. Whereas you push yourself, you know, not to try and have bad game in handball because you're obviously there by yourself. So mm. it's like, oh God, you're only... But again, it takes the pressure off letting everyone else down. You're just kind of letting yourself down nearly. But um, <laughs> but um, you try obviously not to. But I do definitely enjoy the tra- the traveling. Is, is the big thing for me and experience new countries while still playing a sport that you enjoy and love. Yeah. So, um, and then, like, I really enjoy, like, playing here in Mullingar. And last night, even, I was down training the kids, and they came in, and they were clapping and shouting and cheering for me. And it was just so nice to see that, like, that you're inspiring young kids, you know, just to be the best that they can be. Um, And hopefully, they'll keep playing and keep going and just enjoy it as well. So, it's nice. Yeah, you've touched on a few things I, I want to pick up on there. We just don't have time to pick up on everything. But one of the main yeah. things there is the environment sounds like a supportive one. The sport itself uh, seems to have a pretty supportive values. If uh, parents are listening at home this evening uh, or on podcast health and fitness, it's obviously a sport you would advocate for getting children involved in at an early age. Oh, absolutely. It's so good because like you're working both sides of your body all the time. Like as in um, some kids just aren't into, into team sports and they just feel like there's nothing out there for them. They absolutely are. Like or there is like handball and just like give you that out. It's like you're still getting to play competitively and you're under control. It's a non-contact sport. Um and like like that, you're learning all of the basic um, fundamentals, agility, coordination, balance. You know, as in, it, I just feel like as in, it's definitely a sport that you could turn to if, well, if, if even if you are like as in a field sport, like the many of the top hurlers have played handball um, throughout their hurling careers, and DJ Carey, um, Richie Hogan, 
um, and some footballers even. So it's like, it's it definitely like, it just gives you that, um, like I suppose, fight the agility and helps with the movement as well on the field. But um, it's definitely like, it's, an, it's something that a lot of teams actually use for winter training mm. as well, to well, try it's... and keep going as well. So it's nice, yeah. It's kind of the forgotten sport of Gaelic games as well, isn't it? It's um, historically always, uh, it, it, it used to be part of the set uh, to a, a higher degree. From your own personal perspective then, Aoife, obviously, you know, you had uh, family to inspire you uh, in terms of handball, but obviously when we're developing as sports people or even participants in sports, we have our role models and the people that we might want to emulate, maybe not ne- even necessarily in our own sport. I'm curious to know who were the sports people you would have looked up to uh, when you're growing up or the ones even that you admire now and take a bit of inspiration from? Yeah, definitely. Like I said, there was a, like I used to love going to Crow Park um, on all Ireland finals night. So it was obviously the weekend. It was the night before the night before the hurling and football finals. I grew up obviously. I'm a bit younger than Rob Junior, so he definitely always would have been pushing. Like he's so competitive, so focused. He definitely would have inspired me a lot. Yeah. To know to try and keep going and to push myself and to see what I can achieve. But on the even on the female front, like Fiona Shannon was an exceptional player from Antrim and was so successful over, across, like, as in uh, the sport, as well as in the 4020 Cope, but won many world titles. So she was inspiring. And then, like, you have Katrina Casey, Martina McMahon, who are just Sienna and Yikarine. Like, they're all just so, like, they all have their own strength. Those girls keep pushing you on. Like, they're, like, they're winning and they're, I suppose, it's so open at the moment that there's so many people, different people winning that if anyone could actually take it, that's inspired, like, you know, just to keep you going. And they, and I think we all keep each other going. Um, but from, definitely from a 60 by 30 point, it's like Rob Jr. And then my dad obviously was just, uh, I was, like I was going around to games when I was like just about walking to watch him play. And so it was good. And then you obviously have Tom Sheridan and Duxy Walsh, who are just absolutely incredible as well. Mm, yeah. So there's, there's so many players, like, and it's so hard to pinpoint one, but you take so much from each player. Like, we, they all have different strengths. Yeah. And they all, like, approach the game differently. And it's just to, like, to see their approach and to see how it works. It's just, it's incredible, really. Well, I think your inability to to land on a specific name is testament to the the quality of the people in and around the sport over the years and and right now. And um, Aoife, big congratulations on that successful trip over to Spain for the European One Wall Tour. Uh, We'll keep an eye on your exploits domestically and internationally. Flying the flag uh, for Westmeath and, uh, of course, Ireland. Thanks for joining us on Health and Fitness this evening. Thanks so much. Thank you.